Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, good morning. My name is David Lowry, and I'm one of the ruling elders here at New Life. And we're between sermon series right now, and so I have the opportunity to preach for the second time here. I'm really excited for this. So what would you think about a person who went to a concert of one of their all-time favorite bands and left just a quarter of the way through the concert after hearing their favorite song? And what if this same person won a ticket to the Super Bowl and after a thrilling first half where the teams are tied, they decide, I've gotten my money's worth, and they leave? And what if this same person went on a cruise and instead of going out and seeing all of the wonderful activities on the ship, or exploring at every single port, they order room service and stay in their cabin the entire vacation. And what if this person, after going on five thoroughly enjoyable dates, decides to end the relationship and cut off the potential of future dates and maybe even engagement, marriage, and children? What would you think about a person who persistently lived this way? At best, you might think they're just really bad at making decisions. And at worst, you might be concerned that they're either emotionally or mentally unbalanced. It sounds absurd to us that someone would give up so much potential joy by cutting these wonderful experiences short. But you and I do this, actually, because of the sin in our hearts. We're prone to do this spiritually. And we do this because it's easier to emphasize certain aspects of our salvation that require less effort from us. And on the flip side, it's easier to neglect the other aspects of our salvation that require more effort. But when we do this, we shortchange ourselves because God provides us with a truly great salvation. And so, because our salvation actually involves more than the forgiveness of sins, we're able to experience blessings that can form each of us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so actually Christianity in America, we often equate salvation with the forgiveness of sins. And while the forgiveness of sins is a crucial element of our salvation, there's so much more. There's, there are greater blessings and truths about our salvation than merely the fact that we have been forgiven. When we reduce salvation merely to being forgiven or being rescued from hell, we forfeit incredible spiritual blessings that are meant for us. And instead, we live as orphans and as slaves who are powerless to the effects of sin in our lives. And so our passage this morning, Romans 8, 12 through 17, it highlights three other aspects of our salvation beyond being pardoned by God. So if you don't have a Bible this morning, there are paperback Bibles in the seats in front of you. Our text is on page 550 in those Bibles. You can go ahead and turn there now. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are, of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to consider three other aspects of our faith, of our salvation, and all of the blessings that come with them. Because our salvation extends beyond our justification or having our our sins forgiven, we can experience three things. We can experience victory in our sanctification, assurance in our adoption, and hope in our glorification. It's going to be really helpful to start by defining some terms. And so while we might not use all of these terms with regular consistency on a daily basis, they're all found in God's word, so we should familiarize ourselves with them. We just have four here, and as we'll see throughout Romans 8, 12 through 17, these four aspects of our salvation are glorious. So the first one is justification. And justification is the mighty act of God by which he declares sinful people not guilty, but instead righteous. Sanctification is the cooperative work of God and the Christian by which ongoing transformation into greater Christ-likeness occurs. Adoption is the mighty work of God to take sinful people, enemies who were alienated and separated from him, and embrace them as beloved children into his family forever. And finally, glorification is the final mighty act of God in salvation where all Christians will receive resurrection bodies and experience the presence of God for all eternity. Well, the beginning of Romans 8 tells us that God justifies believers by sending Jesus into the world and punishing him for our sins. And the result of this, Romans 8, 1, beautiful. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of our sins have been forgiven if we place our faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus or you have questions about what that entails, please come talk to me after the service. Come talk to Pastor Bob, Pastor Brian, or one of the other elders. What we're going to be exploring today, the blessings and benefits of our salvation, are, those are only available to those who have placed their faith in Christ and had their sins forgiven. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can forgive sins. It's specifically because of this declaration of our justification that we are right in front of a holy God that Romans 8, 12 through 17 is true of us. And so the first two verses here this morning have to do with the process of sanctification. So Paul begins by using the phrase, so then, to signal that because believers have been brought from death to life, and he harps on that from Romans 8.1 to 8.11, we've been brought from death to life, we're no longer debtors to the flesh. 
In other words, Christians owe absolutely nothing to the flesh, and we shouldn't gratify our sinful desires. Now, Paul actually doesn't complete his thought here, but the implication is that we are debtors to God. We owe God our complete allegiance and obedience for bringing us from death to life, for giving us spiritual life. But how can we do this? How can we persistently forsake sin that is so enslaving? Let's be honest. Sin is powerful and sin is compelling. Pride, lust, anger, impatience, gossip, selfishness, these things can feel like they're almost our default mode. But thankfully, verse 13, it provides us the antidote for the poisonous power of sin. Look again, verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This verse is a paradox that is incredibly important for you and me to understand. Those who live a life with unrestrained sin will die, while those who make a practice of putting their sin to death will live. Death comes through living according to sinful desire, and life comes through dying to sinful desire. Now, Paul uses incredibly strong language here, and he, and he does that perfectly, uh, purposefully. And so, for Paul, he says that we are to put to death our sin. And the word that he uses here, it can be translated as put to death or, or to kill. And so, if our objective is to put it to death and to kill it, that means we're actually waging war. We're engulfed in a battle against sin. And so, God's word is abundantly clear for us. To kill sin, it requires nothing less than death and war. Thankfully, we're not left alone in this battle to fight it on our own. We do play a crucial role. However, we have the Holy Spirit as well. And so while our justification our adoption, our regeneration, our glorification, all of these things are actually accomplished by God alone. Sanctification is actually cooperative. And so throughout Scripture, we actually see that this is true, that sanctification is a cooperative process. And so, let's see, that's, there we go. Um, in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul calls us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then Colossians 1.29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, that he powerfully works in me. And so these two verses, along with others, and Romans 8.13, hold two truths up in tension. These two things are true at the same time. First, our sanctification is enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit at all points. And second, God holds us responsible, you and me, for our own spiritual growth, growth at all points. It may be helpful to consider how these two truths can be simultaneously held up by Scripture by considering my last house project. And so for a long portion of last year, much longer than I would have liked, I spent time rebuilding my back deck. And Sarah and I have 
an incredibly big back deck, so it took a long time. And so I had to use tools to do that, drills and saws to cut into the wood. And without their power, without their precision, I would have never been able to accomplish that task and actually rebuild my deck to the exact specifications that I wanted it. But I had to pick up the tools and use them. I had to pick up the drills and saws. No one was going to rebuild my deck for me. It wasn't going to happen by itself. And so the power tools and me actually picking them up and utilizing them, that's similar to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the fact that we are called to engage in the process of sanctification. The process of sanctification both depends on God's work through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our own faithful efforts. Both must work together in order for us to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ during this lifetime. And that's the goal of sanctification. Sanctification, yes, it is killing and putting to death our sin, but positively, it's because we want to be conformed into the image of Christ. We want something better. We want to honor and glorify our God and be made more and more like our Savior, Jesus. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So what does that look like practically on a day-to-day -day basis to be killing sin in our lives? Well, Ephesians 5.18 calls us to be filled with the Spirit, not just indwell. All believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, to be, but to be full of the Holy Spirit. And Galatians 5.22 through 23 shows us what that will look like if we are full of the Spirit. It says that our life will be characterized by, and, and this is a great personal litmus test too, our lives will be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is this fruit evident in your lives? Again, we're not left alone to wage this war. We have the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead living in our hearts. As we wage war against the sinful parts of our heart that still exist, prayer engages the Holy Spirit so that we, he would conquer more and more territory in our lives. So we should pray for power and perseverance in the face of temptation and that God's Spirit would allow us to discern the schemes and lies of the devil and the schemes and lies of our own wicked hearts. And we should be praying to be filled with the Spirit throughout our week. Thankfully, there are two other sources outside of prayer that are powerful as we are conformed into the image of God. First, spending time consistently in God's word will confront our sin. Second Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God persistently uses his word to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And God also persistently uses his own people in our lives so that we can experience victory in our sanctification. 
I would strongly encourage you to immerse yourself here in the Christian community at New Life, especially if this is the only significant touch point throughout your week that you spend with believers. We have life groups that are a great source of fellowship. We have discipleship groups. We have Bible studies throughout the week as well so that we can learn more about God and his word and how to apply it faithfully in our lives. And we all desperately need accountability too. There is sin in each of our hearts and so no one is gonna be shocked if you walk up to them and ask for help in killing and putting to death your sin. The gospel actually frees us up so that we can confess our sins because there is no more guilt or shame. And the gospel actually reminds us as well when others confess their sins to us that we can meet them with grace and truth and compassion and not condemnation because we too have been the recipients of God's lavish grace. Be encouraged that as, as you start to fight your sin and as you continue to put to death your sin that you can experience victory in your sanctification because of God's powerful spirit in our lives. Well, thankfully, our salvation doesn't only provide us with God's spirit to help us live obedient lives. It also provides us with the motivation to do so. It provides us with an assurance that our heart desperately needs. So this motivation can be found in verses 14 through 16, where we see that all Christians have been given a status that quite frankly seems way too good to be true. Verse 14 tells us that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. As we've already explored, being a son of God, being led by the Spirit, uh, being led by the Spirit uh, is proof that we are sons of God. Putting our sin to death proves our sonship. And so Paul goes out of his way to call all believers sons here, even though later on in the passage he's going to call us children of God too. Both are true. And so while Roman culture naturally would have only applied sonship to sons, right, Paul includes women here purposefully. And so Tim Keller's really helpful here to show that in applying sonship to women, this in no way limits their dignity, honor, or value. And so with sonship comes privilege, power, and inheritance. So here's Tim Keller. He says, Christian women should not resent being called sons any more than Christian men should resent being called part of the bride of Christ. Christians are all sons and all bride. God is even-handed in his use of metaphors, and each metaphor tells us something about our relationship with Christ. So Paul goes on to paint a beautiful picture of what sonship means for each of us, men and women. He paints this picture of saying, here's what your life looked like before Christ, and he contrasts that with, here's what your life now looks like because you are in Christ. Before God made us his sons, we were enslaved to our sin, we were in bondage to our fear. And do you see Paul's caution here? He says we can still fall back into fear even though we've been adopted into God's family. 
though we're no longer enslaved to our fear, we can still act like we are slaves to fear. And this is a terrible exchange when you and I revert back to our life apart from Christ, acting like it. Nothing can change that status, but we act functionally as if that's true. Why is this? Because verses 14 through 16 tell us that as God's children, we have been fully adopted into the family of God, that we enjoy intimacy with our heavenly father, and we receive assurance of our unchanging status as God's children. Let's take these three blessings one at a time. First, we have been fully adopted into the family of God. As part of our salvation, we were adopted into God's family when we trusted that Jesus Christ had forgiven us of our sins. Now, adoption actually means that none of us were natural-born children of God, and none of us did anything to deserve that or earn that. That's not how adoption worked. No, no child earns the right to become adopted. Rather, parents choose to set their love on a child by bringing them into their family. The exact same thing is true for our relationship with God. In his great love for lost sinners like you and me, he rescued us from our previous state as orphans and slaves and adopted us into his family. Douglas Moo puts it this way, in adopting us, God has taken no half measures. We have been made full members of the family and partakers of all the privileges belonging to the members of that family. There are no unwanted or second-class children in the family of God. You are supremely loved and valued by the God of the universe who has chosen to set his perfect love on you by bringing you into his family. We also enjoy intimacy with our Heavenly Father. Growing up, only my brothers and I called Jeff Lowry Dad. He was our dad, and he was no one else's dad, and no one enjoyed his fatherly intimacy in the way that we did. Likewise, only true children of God are allowed to cry out to God with, with the God of the universe and say, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic term, and it carries with it this idea of incredible intimacy. So are you seeing this? The God who created everything, the God of the universe, wants us to cry out to him, Abba, Father. He wants us to use a term of endearment and intimacy. Finally, we receive assurance of our unchanging status as God's children. Verse 16 shows us that the Holy Spirit also affirms to us that we are God's children. And so when doubt and fear creep into our hearts that maybe we're not a child of God, or maybe that there's way too much sin in our lives for us to be his children, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to affirm in our hearts and assure us that we are indeed children of God. Our adoption depends on God's declaration not our worthiness. Speaking on the beauty of adoption, one of my seminary professors told us this story. There was a young boy whose parents didn't provide for him, and so he made a habit when they went out, he would steal food so that he knew he would always have a meal to eat. 
Eventually, a judge ruled that his parents couldn't take care of him anymore. They were not fit, and so he was ordered to live with his grandfather. The grandfather loved his grandson. He loved him as his own child. And one day, as they were returning from running errands, the grandfather saw the grandson pull some food out of his pocket that he had stolen, even though the boy had not missed a meal since living with his grandfather. The grandfather then ushered his grandson into the kitchen, and he flung open the doors of a pantry that was massive, and it was chock full of food. And he said, son, all of this is yours. You do not need to live like you used to. You do not need to steal, because I love you, and I will provide everything that you need and more. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to live like we used to. We don't need to look for satisfaction in things, any, in things other than what our Heavenly Father has provided for us. And the blessings that we receive by being adopted into God's family should motivate us to be obedient children of God. And as we're faithful in putting our, death, uh, putting our sin to death through the power of the Holy Spirit, we start bearing a family resemblance to our adoptive father. And what, what we need in order to bear this family resemblance joyfully is to actually believe that the truths that we see here in Romans 8 are as good as they seem to be. It's a heart issue. Again, Douglas Moo's incredibly helpful here. He puts it this way, if some Christians err in basing their assurance of salvation on feelings alone, many others err in basing it on facts and arguments alone. Indeed, what Paul says here calls into question whether one can have a genuine experience of God's spirit of adoption without its affecting the emotions. We don't need to pit emotions and intellect against one another. Instead, we can praise God that he's given us multiple faculties through which we can experience the assurance of our adoption. Well, there's one more blessing that comes with adoption, but it, it goes beyond just the past declaration that we have been brought into God's family. It's a promise for our future, and it's a glorious promise that is a source of great hope. Again, verse 17 says this, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This verse says that we're not only God's children, but we're God's heirs, and we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And so the fourth and final blessing is not mentioned explicitly here, but the implications of verse 17's language make it clear. All heirs receive an inheritance. And since we are God's heirs, we too will receive an inheritance when we're glorified. Okay, so what is this inheritance? Is it the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that's being guarded in heaven for us that First Peter describes? Or is it something else? Likely, I think it's something else. Paul, here in Romans 8, is using these ideas and concepts and language that revolve around family and relational status. And so I think the inheritance that he's mentioning here that we get when we're glorified is God himself. 
our adoption into God's family will reach its fullest expression when we are glorified and share in Christ's glory. Revelation 21 paints a beautiful picture. It says that the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with us. We will be his people, and God himself will be with us as our God. There is one qualification, however. Paul mentions that in order to be glorified with God, we first must have to suffer with Christ. This is the way of God's kingdom. Suffering always precedes glory. And perseverance in the face of suffering is yet another mark of family resemblance. It's another opportunity for us to bear the likeness of our heavenly family. And so we see this pattern throughout scripture of, of suffering preceding glory in the lives of people like Joseph, Moses, David, Naomi, and Job. The Bible is replete with these examples. But there's no clearer example than Philippians 2, 6 through 11. It says that Jesus Christ suffered by taking on human flesh and being a servant and then dying on the cross for our sin. And yet, his exaltation, his glorification that he will receive when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord is preceded by suffering. God has patterned the lives of all of his true children to follow that of our elder brother, Jesus. Listen to what Thomas Watson has to say about this. He says, God has one son without sin, but no son without stripes. Affliction is a badge of adoption. Affliction is God's seal by which he marks all of us for his own. Because Jesus experienced God, God's wrath on the cross in our place, any suffering that you or I ever experience on this earth is the only hell that we will ever have to endure. Thankfully, also, any suffering that we face because we still live with corrupted hearts and corrupted bodies in a corrupted world, it's only temporary. But Romans 8 promises us that our bodies will be glorified, that the effects and the presence of sin will be no more, and we will reign for all eternity with our God. So what do we do with future-oriented promises? Feels a little bit enigmatic sometimes. Well, we carve out time to think about them, meditate, and dwell on them. When we're distracted by the busyness of life, and when we're experiencing trials and suffering, what we desperately need is to be reminded of the great hope that's, a, that's awaiting us. Dwelling upon our future glorification reminds us that our ultimate hope cannot be found in this world. It can only be found in our God. As we've seen, sanctification, adoption, and glorification should affect every part of who we are. It should affect our head, our heart, and our hands. As we meditate on the implications of these three aspects of our salvation, and as we let those truths sink deep down into our hearts, and as we start living obedient lives that show our family resemblance, we will experience victory, assurance, and hope. Paul shows us in just six quick verses what great blessings come with our salvation. 
These blessings were all purchased for us on the cross when Jesus substituted himself in our place and took on God's wrath that we deserved to experience. And as if that wasn't wonderful enough, he then takes the blessings and glory that are his alone and bestows them upon us, his sinful and undeserving younger siblings. And because of this, you and I stand completely forgiven in front of a holy God. But as we've seen this morning, our salvation provides us with so much more than that. It provides us with victory in our sanctification, assurance in our adoption, and hope in our glorification. Truly, in God, we have so great a salvation. Let me pray. God, we praise you that you have not only pardoned us from our guilt, but that you have blessed us with so many other blessings through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit so that we would be obedient sons and daughters. Help us to be people who are committed to prayer, to your word, and gospel-centered community. We ask that the effects of our adoption would sink deep into our hearts and provide us with assurance of your fatherly affection for us. And we pray that you would remind us of the great hope that awaits us, a perfect and everlasting relationship with our triune God. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.